I sometimes like to do the evening service. I think you start off with a question. Um, so turn to your neighbor and think about this and uh, talk with them about what is the one thing. If you, ha- if, if you had to give one piece of advice to like a, new, a brand new person who walks the door that you need to know about the culture at Park Lane. Like what's something that would maybe make it easier for them to like, you know, kind of understand kind of what goes on here. Turn to your neighbor and talk about, just take a few minutes. What's the one thing that you would say, you need to know this about Park Lane before you start coming here? So I'm not going to ask people to say it, so don't worry. I'm not going to put you on the spot. All right, people are dying down. I trust that you guys had an interesting conversation. Uh, we'll talk, I mean, like I said, I'm not going to ask you about it. I just want to get people thinking about maybe what are some of the things in our church are kind of these like un, un, unspoken like cultural things in our church that we do that maybe new people wouldn't really understand. We're going to read from Galatians, Galatians 2. It's on 824 in the Bibles in the pews. Um, Originally, I had it 15 through 21. That's kind of what a lot of the newer versions of the NIV, that's where they put the, the, like the beginning of the section. But I think starting at 11 is helpful to understand a little bit of the context of what we're talking about. So let's read it, and we'll talk, we'll talk about this passage tonight. When Peter came to Antioch, so this is Paul. Paul wrote to the, Galatian, the church in Galatia, and he Goes, he, he wants to tell him about uh, an event that happened. So, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was certainly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified." If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, that The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. There's a lot in there. It's a, there's a lot of like those, it's a lot of really good church words. Justified, salvation, all of these things. And it's just such an interesting, it's so interesting to have like two sides of an event. Uh, if you read back in Acts, basically Paul's talking about like the first council where the, all of these, like the early Christian leaders got together and they were like, trying to figure out what was important for this new Christian faith. And that was the meeting where they based, Paul was like, we don't need these, you do not need to first become a Jew to become a Christian. Okay? And that's basically what Paul is coming up against. So Paul, he's writing this letter to this church in Galatia. And what I love about this story of Paul is it really kind of shows Paul's character. Right? You know, Paul was that guy in the meeting who was, like, throwing up his arms. He seemed like a little bit of a hothead. And he had, like, he was doing, probably doing a lot of talking, probably a lot of strong finger pointing, which I like to think, yelling, talking over people. But, you know, like, the problem is that those people, we tend to tune them out. But Paul had actually a lot of worthwhile things to say still. And... Paul's really unhappy with the church in Galatia particularly. We won't go into that much tonight. But he's really angry because this is something that's happening in churches all over the Mediterranean area at that time. There, you know, it's this new, this young faith. People are, are still trying to figure out, wait a second, how does this all work out? You know, especially these Jewish people. They're like, for so long... I was told by my rabbi that this is what it meant to be, you know, following the Lord. You're supposed to do this. I go to temple once a year. I, you know, I go to the synagogue once a week. You know, read Torah. I make sure, you know, if you're a guy, you don't like trim your beard too much. Things like this. You knew what you were supposed to do. And now all of a sudden, like, everything's up for grabs. What does it mean? Who is it? Like, what are we supposed to do? What are the rules now? Do we have to go to temple still? All these things. And it's kind of causing this like power vacuum in some places. And so we see that in the church of Galatia, right? And you get everybody like filling this void. And what's happening is you get a lot of these Christians who, you know, they were born Jewish. They're convinced that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah and they need to follow, follow him. But they, they think because, you know, they were first Jewish, they, had, they already had the Old Testament. You know, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus, Jesus was quoting all the time from the Old Testament. He was a, you know, a, a teacher of the law, like a, a Torah teacher by, anyway. They knew exactly, like, what, they need, what needed to happen. So they kind of fill in. They're like, you know, okay, like, yes, you got, we got we to gotta trust in Jesus. But... You also got to do these other things because this is what you know, we've, we've always been doing. This is what God commands his people to do. So if you want to be a follower of Yahweh, you need to follow the Jewish customs, follow all the Jewish stuff in order to truly worship Jesus as the Messiah. So that meant, you know, if you're a Jewish person, it's pretty easy. You know, it's pretty easy for you. 
But if you were a Gentile, that meant a lot of things that you had to do. You had to, you know, go through the process. You had to go, you know, follow the temple laws. You had to eat all, like, the right food. You had to get circumcised if you were a guy. It was all of these things that it just required so much. And for Jewish people who had already been doing it, who were already living in that culture, that was easy. It's like they didn't have to change anything. They didn't have to give anything up, really, to follow Jesus. They could just kind of add him on, keep doing what they were doing. And what makes Paul the the mad the most about this situation is that he's kind of like nobody's on his side. All the other apostles, all of the other people who had seen, who had known Jesus personally, who had done ministry with Jesus, they were all on this other side. This side that says, yeah, yeah. You need to become Jewish if you really want to be a Christian. And what makes him the most mad is that, you know, the guy he thought, the the people he thought were his allies, people like Barnabas, who we know traveled with Paul on a lot of missionary journeys, a really close friend was swayed to the other side, and Peter. You remember the guy in Acts who, you know, he goes to that Roman soldier's house and God gives him this vision of that. There's this vision of a, like a white sheet coming down from heaven full of all these animals, unclean animals, right, that Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. You know, I, for some reason, I, when I was a kid, I always imagined like, you know, Jesus was ask, asking Peter to eat a crocodile because I thought that was gross. But, so, so God sends him this vision, and God's saying, don't call what I've made clean, unclean. This guy, who had a vision from God saying that Gentiles basically did not need to follow the Jewish customs, even he is being swayed by this group, and he's like, yeah, well, I mean, I'm just going to not talk about that vision, and I just want to keep in good standing with these people. He's bowing down to these, like, cultural pressures, these small, insignificant things that don't really matter. And Peter, the one who Jesus said his church was going to be built on, is not only not listening to what God had constructed him, but he's constructing these barriers, putting them in the way of people who might come to Christ. And I wonder, I want, to, I want us to think a little about tonight, what barriers, maybe in our own personal life are we putting up, but also what barriers maybe we as a community have put up here at Park Lane to other people. i got to tell you something. I grew up in the CRC church. I grew up in a CRC culture. Um, if you don't know much about what that means, that means I have a Dutch last name. That means generally, for a lot of us, you went to Christian school. That means that you don't talk during church. Even if you know uh, the pastor asks for an amen, you know he doesn't really want it. Trust me, don't say anything. Um, that means that you, <laughs> you live frugally. That means that after major events, there's generally ham buns, okay? And those are all essential gospel items for us, right? Yeah, 
We know what the culture of our church is. I got to be honest, though, Park Lane is a unique place. It doesn't fit that stereotype as well, probably because it's in Portland, not in, you know, Grand Rapids, but that's okay. And that's actually probably better. I mean, don't tell anybody in, in Grand Rapids I said that. Um, but what do we, but we at Park Lane, even if we don't fit the norm of what a CRC, a Christian Reformed church, should be, what are those things that we here at Park Lane think? I don't know if this person who, like this new member who comes here, you know, they were, they were yelling amen when Pastor Pete was preaching. I don't know if they're going to fit in here. What are these barriers are we maybe putting up, trying to keep people out that God is sending us? What are those things? Originally, I was going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and talk about it, but I'm going to keep going. I hope that's okay. What are, the, what are those things that, that, that you and I, myself included, because there's a lot that I'm like, oh, if, I'm like, well, I think like, if we get rid of that, oh, please don't get rid of that. Or like, oh, let's not do that. I don't really want to do that. What are those things in our worship, our culture here at Park Lane, that maybe we don't want change or we don't want coming in and affecting how we do things, how, how we do our worship, how we relate to Christ, how we view our faith. You know, what I think is interesting, do you guys, okay, do you guys know what, oh, there's, I wasn't thinking about this. What do Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have in common? Anybody? They're Muslims. But they weren't originally, right? They're converts. They're both converts. They both also changed their name after they converted, okay? Which I always thought was fascinating, because I thought Kareem Abdul-Dabar was an awesome name. If I was going to change my name, it'd be something like that, too. But there's, in Islam, there's kind of this whole tradition of changing your name when you convert to it. And I was thinking, and I remember when I was a kid, I was just, when I was reading up on these types of things, because I thought, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was cool, I was like, oh, that's weird. And I was like, I, want, I was like well, we, we as Christians would never do that. Like, and then you, you, you look back at the history of Christianity, and you look at maybe how, you know, like we treated native peoples here in North America. You look at how we treated, you know, we, slaves that we, you know, dragged over here from Africa and enslaved here. We had them change their names forcibly. We, and especially, you know, like, especially you see with the native groups, right? We, we took away their culture. We said, you got to do this. You got to wear pants. You got you to gotta cut your hair, change your name, settle down on a nice farm, be productive. And I'm not saying that what we at Park Lane, what we're doing is as bad as what was happening, you know, a hundred years ago. But I think if we stop and we just reflect on what are those things that we would say, this is important for you to be a Christian, or this is important for you to be a Christian here at Park Lane. I have a friend, his name is James Lee. He's the pastor of Christ Community CRC on Long Island. 
Um, he's Korean. He's a good friend of mine in seminary. And we would often joke that, especially, you know, in our last year, as we're starting to think about, you know, looking for church jobs and stuff like that, we would often joke that, you know, you know if you really want to get a good job at the CRC, make sure you change your name to you know, James Vanderlee, because that would be better. It'd be, it'd be easier to find a job. And while it was harmless joking, there's something there. Something beneath the surface that there's this underlying culture and can even create barriers for people to really experience the gospel. You know, this passage is all about, and the catechism really points out the fact that it's not the works that you do that save you. It's ultimately grace in Christ. And, but it's interesting that that comes out in the context of this passage where Paul is basically telling the early Christian leadership that you need to stop creating these barriers for people. And how what seems like nothing to us, that seems like an essential part of our identity and a part of our worship practices, a part of our expression of faith in Christ, can become those barriers, can become works that, that outsiders, new people feel like they have to follow this checklist. I need to, you know, change my last name to something Dutch. I need to start actually liking hand buns. I can't say things in church. All of these things that we all think, that we don't think anything of, people start viewing as works. It's pretty common. I think it's pretty, pretty common for everybody. And I think it's kind of a like lies at the heart of who we are as people. Um, kind of what, it, you know, we want power and control, right? I mean, sometimes we don't, but I think for the most time we want, like, nobody like, is thinking, like, yeah, you know, my life's completely out of control. I'm not living anywhere. I have no security, and it's amazing, right? Nobody really says that. We all want control, and we grab as much as possible. So the idea of faith an idea that of believing in a Savior who says, no, 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 no. You don't gain anything. You don't, you don't achieve anything. This is for you. I have given it to you. You can't claim that you did this. I did it for you. That goes against everything, I feel like, what, everything that we want. I want to know that I can be proud of something because... I built it, I achieved it, or I want to know where I stand. I want to have that checklist. I want to be able to say, ah, I, was, I did that thing wrong yesterday, so i got to do a couple more things to make up for it, but now I know where I stand with Christ. There's, there is a sense of security in that, but it's fragile. And I think that's ultimately what the Jewish Christians at that time were doing. They wanted to maintain that control because they wanted to know. They wanted that mystery solved for them. They wanted to know where they stood. 
and that they can make they can make a difference in their faith life. And now Paul's coming in and he's you know throwing out like whole sections of the Bible. It seems like oh you don't really need to follow that. You know that doesn't really matter. He's not really doing that. But that's what it probably seemed like to them. And he's turning everything on end. But even Paul, he doesn't let his audience stay too anxious for long because he does give them assurance. And he gives them the best assurance there is. He gives them assurance in Christ. That it is no longer them who live. They've died to their sins. Or Christ has died for their sins. They've died to their old life in Christ. And now Christ lives in them. Anything good, anything that comes of that, it isn't because of what they did, it's because of what Christ did for them. And he basically says, he's basically telling them, don't worry about messing things up. Don't worry about not being a perfect Christian because you're not going to be a perfect Christian. I like how the Heidelberg Catechism, um, it's a question answer 62 Right, which is, you know, which a lot of what the New City Catechism is based off of is the Heidelberg Catechism and some other, some Presbyterian stuff. Um, so it says, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God? Or at least a part of our righteousness. So it's saying, like, why can't, why can't good works be factored into our salvation? And it says, because the righteousness which, pass, can, which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect can't be any little bit of, of, of bad stuff in it, and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are imperfect and stained with sin. So, he's, so even, even the guy, you know, even the 1,500 years after the, Paul wrote his thing, they still, it was still the same way. Every, every good thing that we do is tinted, is, is tinged with sin in some way. And that's what's so amazing about what Christ does, about him living in us, is that we know we're imperfect. You're going to mess up. We're going to screw up. I'm going to say something stupid. It happens all the time. You've heard it. But Christ lives in you. He, his life. He died for your sins. He, he lived perfectly and he rose from the dead. He, he's victory over suffering and evil. That's all that matters now. It's that gift that he gives us. It's a complete gift. You don't need any more. You know, and I think the real question is like, so okay, what does that mean for us? You know, we're a part of this tradition started by Martin Luther, that German theologian who was like, wait, 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 wait. The Bible says, you know, grace alone, our works don't matter. At the church at that time kind of went off the rails with like, you know, all that work stuff. And he, he's like, okay, let's focus on that instead of doing good things. So we're a part of this tradition that says that. that. And we've heard, we, a lot of us have heard that a lot. It's kind of a central theme in our Christian belief. So what good does that do us? And I think that 
This idea that Christ gives this freely, that it's not out of our own good, our own good works, but instead, because of what Christ did, it actually frees us from a lot of stress. Obviously, we don't have to worry. We don't have to be thinking about the checklist of things. You know, if you've had a rough day, Christ still loves you. And he's calling you to try again. It's okay. Not because we're trying to achieve something, but because we want to live in gratitude. That's next week's sermon. But I also think it, it also actually makes us a better church. And I think what that is, it reminds us that the barrier to be a Christian is so low. It's basically non-existent because Christ is in charge of that. Christ is saying, I'm calling you in. I'm calling you to a life with me. I'm going to live in you because I died for your sins. You died died to those sinful ways and rose again. And my righteousness, my, my perfection now covers you. And so we don't need a list of things. We don't need to make, we don't have to vet these people to make sure, you know, any people who come their way, that they're actually sincere. Because Christ is the one who lives in them. And you don't have to change your name for it. You don't have to cut your hair or change your clothes or even, you know, speak differently. Instead, Christ's life is the only thing. It's the only thing that we need. And he gives it freely. You know, Christ broke down any barriers in the law that we needed to fulfill, and he fulfilled them for us. People of God, we worship a God who doesn't build barriers and ask for us to jump over them. Instead, he breaks them down and gives us his life so that we can live. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, we come to you because we know that oftentimes we've put up barriers. We've loved our theology or our church culture over you, Lord. And we've messed up a lot. But we know, Lord, that ultimately... Nothing that we do, whether they're good or bad, will separate us from your love. Because when you have called us to your throne, to your cross, Lord, we die with you, and you live in us. You make us new. You call us to live for you. And you send us support through the power of your spirit and the power of your church. And all God's people said, Amen.